Good morning and welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman and today I'm speaking with Jeffrey Landers, who has a lot to talk about with real estate and divorcing. Good, good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, Hindel. How are you today? I'm very well. It stopped snowing, but uh, you know, it is winter and you're somewhere no, warmer. Not in West Palm Beach, though. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, in the Boston area, we have different weather. So today, I'd like to talk to you about um, what to do about the real estate in a divorce. Uh, I know you have lots of good ideas and books to prove it. I read your good ideas. I'd like to share them with our listening audience. So first, tell us about yourself. Well, I've been involved in the uh, divorce arena, if you will, since 2010. I'm a CDFA, which is a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. I'm also a CDLP, which is a certified divorce lending professional. I'm a licensed mortgage broker, a licensed real estate broker, um, and a law school dropout. So, well, you've got a lot of designations, except for JD. I, I do, guess, right? I do, yeah. and and a BA in psychology. So, well, that helps. It always helps. I think psychology is needed in every, everything we do. Well, good. So today, um, we'd like to talk about how to well, some ways to think about what to do about the house, the marital home, and maybe the other real estate that might be related right. to divorces. So um, first, um, what, what do you think about the house in a divorce? What is your general opinion about how to think about it? Well, you, usually there are only three options. Um, and, and one is to continue to co-own the home post-divorce and basically do nothing uh, which, in my opinion, is usually a horrible, horrible, no good, <laughs> lousy idea. Yeah, tell us what you really uh, think about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, really. I am not holding back on that uh, for, a, for a lot of reasons. I, I, I mean, you know, when you're getting divorced, you, part of it uh, is, you know, to untangle yourself financially uh, from, from your spouse. And if you continue to own, uh, what may be your largest asset together uh, when you didn't get along before and you had maybe financial problems and other problems which precipitated the entire divorce. Why do you think things would be different post-divorce? Um, and especially if people have significant new others after that that are putting pressure, hey, you know, we got a lot of money tied up in that home. Let's get rid of it. Uh, you know, the roof needs replacing. It's $40,000. One ex-spouse doesn't have the money. What happens then? I mean, there's just so many issues that, as I said, it's usually not a really good option. Yeah, it's um, also other- it, it's also aggravates the, uh, the spouse who doesn't live in the house when the spouse who does live in the house invites their new partner in. <laughs> but, oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And not only that, it creates a lot of uh, preliminary uh, time and legal expenses when you're going through because now in the divorce settlement agreement, you've got to have another 10 pages of verbiage as to, okay, what do you do? How do you figure out who's going to be the real estate broker when you eventually sell? Right. What if one party doesn't like the broker? What if what price do you put it on? When do you decide to lower? I mean, there, there's so much involved and, and as good as any attorney can be, you can't think of every, you know, what if uh, scenario. So obviously you try to, uh, you know, cover as much as possible, but that just adds to legal expenses and, and, and time. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we do a lot of what ifs in drafting those uh, divorce agreements, but you're right. Sometimes you can't imagine right. every you can't scenario. Think of everything, mm -hmm. Right? You know, so I mean, we just saw that with the pandemic. I mean, whoever would have thought, <laughs> you know, something of that nature. So yeah. uh, you really can't account for everything. And then the other two options, one one is very obvious. You sell the home, you take the proceeds, you, you, you divide it, and each of you go on, on your own and do whatever you want with the money. Or what happens in many cases, as you well know, is one spouse would like to keep the home, typically the woman, especially if they're all minor children. So uh, in my estimation, there's really two options. One spouse keeps the home, buys out the other spouse's share of the equity, refinances the mortgage into their own name, yeah. or you just sell the house and move on. Yeah, probably with a preference to selling the house and moving on, but people are pretty tied to their home. And so probably more often dealing with option three, which is one spouse stays in the house and buys out the other's interest. Is that, is that fair? Well, Especially if, if if they're children, because, you know, as it is, it's traumatic enough. This is where my BA in psychology comes in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's traumatic enough on, on the children, their parents divorcing and, you, you, you know, custody agreements and who sees who, what weekend or whatever. Now to move, take the kids out of their school, perhaps away from their friends, just adds... Uh, more trauma to, to to the children. So I mean, if you if there's a way to remain in the home, um, and and not only that, I mean, you know, e even for you know the spouse that wants to keep the home, I mean, on top of divorcing and everything else, now you got to pack everything up, find a new place, do the home move. It's it's just a lot to deal with. It is for sure. So it's a lot easier to stay in the marital home, and then you deal with the finances of one person staying and one person out, and who wants the money from the equity, right? Right. So you, typically what happens, as you well know, is um, the spouse that's leaving, the out spouse, um, wants their share of the equity. Right. So the first question is, okay, you know, figuring out, getting an appraisal, you know, what, what's the value of the home, deducting, you know, any mortgages, HELOC, whatever, and coming up with the amount of equity um, and then dividing that equity. In most cases, it's 50-50, but it doesn't have to be. Um, but, you know, for our purposes, let's assume it's 50-50. So if it's a $500,000 house and there's a $200,000 mortgage, you have 300000 of equity, which means that the spouse that's not keeping the home wants one hundred and fifty grand. Yeah. The question is, how do, how do you do that? Yeah. So um, there are usually two ways. Yeah. Uh, one, you have sufficient other assets or will post-divorce, whether it's, you know, bank accounts, a stock portfolio, all of that that you could use. Or perhaps, you know, there's another property, a vacation home that might have, uh, you know, comparable amount of equity in it. Or a combination. It could be, you know, a smaller vacation home uh, instead of the hundred and fifty thousand. Maybe there's seventy five thousand worth of equity. You could do that and then add some cash to it. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to skin the cat. Um, it really depends on, of course, the circumstances of right. uh, the uh, divorcing party. Uh, things could be negotiated if the spouse, you know, keeping the home. 
uh, is getting a certain amount of alimony. Maybe that alimony is reduced for a period of time to compensate the leaving spouse. Um, all of those things are obviously subject to, uh, you know, negotiation. And of course, whether that happens in an out of court setting or, you know, you go into trial yeah. and then all bets are off, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're going through a trial. Um, if there aren't sufficient assets, uh, then the next step would be, okay, um, if you have to pay off that $200,000 mortgage and give $150,000 to the departing spouse, well, maybe you could qualify for a mortgage of $350,000, which you would use to pay off the $200,000 existing mortgage and then the additional $150,000 uh, to give to the departing spouse assuming you could qualify right. for that larger mortgage, which is always a big if. All right. So let's talk about the qualification rules in a moment. Um, in my experience, I find that agreeing to the value of the house is a big issue. It's because um, appraising real estate is an art, not a science, as I say. And so two appraisers will, I can guarantee, never come up with the same dollar sure. amount value to the house. So it's a matter of negotiating what the value is and that both people, both spouses think is fair, which is sometimes an average of the two or getting a third appraiser. Um, I, or, and I was right? going to say that sometimes if, if you know, you're at loggerheads and each spouse has their own appraiser and they come up with different values, they agree that the two appraisers pick a third appraiser. Uh, and that's the one that is the value, whatever that number is. Or as you said, you, you know, you do an average of the two. Yeah. Um, I guess it depends how contentious the divorce is, yeah. is also, right? Well, and how much they're fighting over, because I think there's a you know, cost-benefit analysis of your you know, $50,000 exactly, apart or your $10,000 apart or your $500,000 apart. I've seen some exactly. very, <clears throat> yeah, over my <clears throat> years uh, as a real, as a, excuse me, over my years as a divorce attorney, I've seen, um, appraisers. At one time, it was five hundred thousand dollars apart. I couldn't believe it. Um, rarely. Well, my, my own, my own situation. I was refinancing my house in uh, in in New York, and and we got a couple of different uh, appraisals. Um, and one of them was two hundred thousand dollars apart. Yeah. I mean, that that was insane. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't a ten million dollar house where you could say, okay you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars one way or the other on a $10 million house, uh, you know, is, is just a fraction. But yeah. uh, in this case, a, a difference of 200,000 was pretty significant. Yeah, it really, it's amazing, isn't it? So, you know, there's no guarantee of what the value is until you sell it. The only way of determining its value is to sell the property, right? That, that's exactly right. Right. You, what somebody's willing to pay for it is is what it's worth. Yeah, and that depends on the inventory at the time and the interest rates at the time and all kinds of other oh, yeah. economic oh, factors. Yeah. I, I mean, timing is everything. Yeah. I mean, look at the difference now and 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 where prices were six months ago, where every house was getting you know twenty bids and people were doing you know fifty, a hundred thousand dollars over asking. That's yeah. not the scenario anymore. Exactly. That's right. All right, so we're talking about the, the third scenario of one spouse buying out the other spouse and the spouse right. in the house having to pay the spouse that's out of the house money for the equity, whatever that amount turns out to be. Right. So what are some of the lending rules, since you're a, a certified in that area well, too? Um, well, well, we need to, I, I mean, the lender doesn't really care about you buying out 
you know, your spouse's share. I mean, that that that's part of the divorce process. What 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 the um, mortgage lender is going to care about um, is a number of things. Uh, one, your income. Okay, do you have sufficient income uh, to pay uh, the principal, the interest, the real estate taxes, the home insurance, uh, any you know homeowners association fees? Uh, in some cases, depending on on the amount of uh, the loan, uh, is there mortgage insurance? All of that is a, is part of what they call the DTI, the debt to income ratio. And there's two parts of that. You have the front part, which is what we just talked about: principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and association fees. And then they have the back end, uh, which is all of those things we just talked about, plus whatever monthly credit obligations you have, such as credit cards, your auto loan, uh, student loans, um, a mortgage on another property. Um, if someone's paying, you know, alimony and child support for, for a previous marriage, uh, those things would come into play. Most lenders like to see the front ratio being around 28% um, and the back end around 36%. Um, you can often go much higher, but interesting. Uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae just recently came out with uh, new rules where they're going to make it more expensive starting this May 1st uh, if the back end DTI is over 40%, because they consider it a bigger risk. Yeah. Okay. The more of your income that you're using for those expenses. Yeah the more likely you could run into trouble down the road if you lose your job or, or or something happens. So income is a big factor. Now, that income could be from a W-2 job, you know, where you have a salary and here's my paycheck or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and if the spouse that wants to keep the house has sufficient, you know, W-2 income, um, that then it's then it's not an issue. As you know, um, the uh, spouse receiving alimony or child support does not have to disclose it, and and you really a lender can't even ask that question. However, if you need that extra income, then you could disclose it, and then there are various rules concerning alimony and child support that a lender will look for. Got it. So there's the analysis on the income side to make sure a spouse can afford to live there and the analysis on the expense side, too. Right. And the rules are changing, you said, with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as of May of 2023. That That is correct. Mm -hmm. And they have specific rules governing um, alimony and child support. So in both cases, you have had to receive it consistently and on time six months prior to your application for the mortgage, and then it must continue at least 36 months thereafter. So we're talking about a 42-month period right. where you have to have you know, alimony and child support. So um, I, I know in Florida, the age of emancipation, and I think where you are, the age of emancipation is also 18 up until when, is it 18 in, in Massachusetts it or is 21? Well, it's graduation from college or age 23 if the child does not graduate until after, until okay. 23. So, so let's use, because it's easier, let's use uh, Florida as an example where yeah. the age of emancipation is 18 and, and it's there's not a requirement to pay child support beyond that. 
So if, if your child is 16 years old and you're collecting and you're entitled to child support, that amount that you're getting for that child will not count as qualifying income because in two years that child turns 18. So you're not going to satisfy the 36 month rule that it has to continue. Yeah. So that's very, very important. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with receiving the income six months prior to application. So um, I've seen actually a lot of divorce settlement agreements where the attorney would put in, you have 90 days to uh, refinance the home. And yeah. if not, uh, the home has to be put up for sale. Yeah. Well, unless they've been collecting uh, alimony and child support for a six-month period, they're never going to be able to satisfy that requirement. So immediately, um, they'll have to sell. They're, they're in trouble, which yeah. is why it always makes sense to bring someone like me in as early in the divorce process as possible um, to figure out um, if, if it's realistic and feasible, uh, you know, for the spouse that wants to keep the home to keep it. it. It makes no sense, you know, to spend the time going back and forth and the legal expenses, negotiating, keeping the home and all of this. And then you find out that one, they don't have enough qualifying income or, or maybe their credit scores are lousy or their DTI is too high. And, you know, they have, you know, debt that they didn't tell you about. Uh, so it's it's better to find this out as early as possible, whether it's realistic or not, and, and not waste time on something sure. that yeah. may may not be able to happen. Yeah, good. that's a very good point. Very good part. Uh, so many things to think about. You know, um, when there's two things about the six-month payment time, that can happen before the divorce is final, though, right? It's not like the divorce has to be final and then six months. No, so 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 the advice would be for the for you to negotiate a temporary support up front because it doesn't have to be the same amount. I mean, you could negotiate up front, you know, temporary support, uh, you know, of a hundred dollars per month. Yeah. Okay, and that gets the clock starting at least for you know the alimony or spousal support. But but by the way, I mean, depending on which state it's called maintenance or spousal support or whatever. Yeah. But for lending requirements, when you put things into the divorce settlement agreement for lend for lenders and for the IRS, they only recognize the word alimony. Okay. So you, you know, I always advise, you know, the divorce attorneys that I'm working with to put in saying, you know, alimony, spousal support, maintenance for the purposes of this all have the same meaning. So this way, you know, you don't run into any situations with, with lenders or, or even the IRS. Uh, it's not such a big deal now that, you know, since uh, January of 2019, uh, you know, alimony is no longer tax deductible or ta right. taxable income. Right. So. Um, you know, that changes things a little bit. So For the IRS, but not for the lenders. The lenders need the word alimony in there, huh? They need the word alimony. Okay. So, you know, just putting something in saying, you know, that they're all deemed to, you know, mean the same thing yeah. uh, is, is a good way to do it. Well, I'm sorry. What was that again? No, I'm saying that, you know, to put a definition in the divorce settlement agreement that, you know, for the purposes of this agreement, something like alimony, spousal support, maintenance, oh, oh. Um, all have the same meaning. Ah, let's see, that would be helpful in the language. I actually was just thinking that I have a case where I got the court order yesterday, and um, 
the, I represent the wife, the husband was ordered to pay child support, but also ordered to pay 50% of the principal interest taxes um, and insurance on the marital home. But there's no alimony order. So in a way, that obligation, and she's in the marital home with, primarily with the children. So in a way, that obligation, his obligation to pay the principal interest taxes and insurance is like alimony, but she didn't, the judge didn't characterize it that way. Right. And, and they usually won't. So, so many times uh, I've worked on many cases where, you know, the divorce attorney said, look, let's not rock the boat. You, you, know, you know, let's say it's the husband that, that, that's paying. He's paying the mortgage. He's paying all the bills. Let's not ask for temporary alimony because, you know, as long as he keeps paying it, let's not rock the boat. And I understand the rationale for that. And especially if it's a contentious divorce. But for the purposes of starting the clock, that's problematic uh, because the lenders, the fact that he's paying the mortgage and he's paying the real estate taxes, that's not going to satisfy the six months of alimony if they will ultimately get alimony. I mean, if they're never going to get alimony, then then it's moot. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, alimony is also a, um, a painful word for the person who has to pay it. Right. Yes, and 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 probably now twenty five percent plus of my clients, uh, um, where the woman is is the breadwinner, um, and uh, women hate just as much as men. Sure, <laughs> that's right. It's a bad yeah. word. It's like I'm doing all the work, and he's just sitting around the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you understand. Video games. No, 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 nobody likes it. Nobody likes that's it. That's right. So I think that's why this judge, you know, avoided using alimony and decided that uh, instead she would just have him pay, you know, expenses. Because, you know, it's easier psychologically for someone to pay toward a joint asset than pay the other spouse. Right. Money. But what happens if, if that spouse <laughs> wants to, that's, you know, in the home wants to keep the home and, and if, if, if the mortgage is not solely in her name, the mortgage would have to be refinanced in, into her name. Sure. Because if the departing spouse is not going to want to be obligated on a mortgage for a house that they no longer own. Yep, that's for sure. She'll have to refinance if she keeps that house. Right? She'll have to refinance. Now, you know, if she has a job and she's m- making sufficient income to carry the mortgage, then the alimony and child support... Uh, will not be a factor, but um, yeah. if she doesn't, um, then you might. She might need alimony and child support, and whether that's sufficient or not, I don't know. That's on a case by case basis. That's right. Um, and and as I wrote about in in, in my book, uh, Divorce House Sense, um, you know, if you if you have other assets, the way to convert those assets into qualified income for the purposes of, um, of uh, you know, either refinancing your mortgage or even getting a new mortgage. I mean, this is not just, uh, those requirements are not just for refinancing. You could still decide to sell the home and then you want to go off and buy a smaller home or, or a condo or whatever. You're still going to meet, if you're dependent on alimony and child support, that that 636 rule doesn't change yeah. uh, for a new mortgage. Okay, so let's, um, we've got a few minutes left, so let's talk about what hap- how, to, how to tell people how to qualify when they have no income or insufficient income. 
Okay, so if if they have assets, uh, there's there's a number of ways to do that. Okay, one of my favorite is is using something called a fixed immediate um, annuity. Yeah, and and basically what you do is you work with a life insurance company. So let's say you give them a lump sum of a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Okay. Now the shortest term most insurance companies will do is five years. Yeah. Basically what happens is that in return for that hundred thousand, which is not refundable, but over the five year period, basically you're going to get all that money back plus some that's, uh, you know, the interest component of it. But let's say you get back $1,500 a month. I'm just making numbers up. That $1,500 a month that you're getting from uh, the insurance company counts for qualified income. And in that case, all you need to do is show the uh, mortgage lender that you received the first payment. So all you need to do is show your bank account and said, hey, I just got this deposit from my annuity from you know Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Bingo. As long as it, it still has to have that 36-month continuous continuance. But uh, in in most cases, um, for an annuity, it's usually a, a five year is the shortest. Oh, okay. Uh, Interesting. Frame. So, and the reason an underwriter might be happy with this annuity f- stream of income is because it's a contract. Annuity is a contract. So that's kind of, right. the, it's, it's a guarantee. Mm-hmm. It's guaranteed by the insurance company. So you basically trade it. But we'll ha- what will happen, depending upon insurance rates, um, interest rates is once you give the the hundred thousand dollars to the insurance company over that sixty month period, that five year period, yeah. you'll get a hundred thousand dollars plus back, right? Paid monthly, and the first hundred thousand dollars that you get back is not even taxable because it's considered a return of your own money, principal. Yeah. So let's say you made six thousand dollars in interest. Uh, that the interest portion would be taxable, but uh, the 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 hundred thousand portion is not because it's a return of uh, principal. Yeah. And even the even the interest is going to be spread over at least five years, right? That, that's correct. So so you you're, you're only doing it you know divided by five, and and that's what you're paying interest on uh, okay. e- each year, which right. you know is probably pretty nominal. All right. So one option is this fixed immediate annuity to come up with right. uh, income. And the other one is a revocable trust. Yeah. And, and the thing with a revocable trust, one, the language should be in the divorce settlement agreement that, that a revocable trust is being established, that as part pursuant to the divorce, the money that's going into the trust will be transferred as part of the divorce process. You don't want to give it to the spouse that's staying there and the spouse in turn will put it into the trust because lenders say, basically, you're paying yourself money. Mm. So it should be pursuant to the divorce. The beneficiary would be the spouse that needs the income that's staying in the home. Right. And the trust agreement needs to stipulate um, the amount that's being paid per month for how long and the amount of money that's being transferred in the trust has to be sufficient to cover that again for that 36 month, three year period. Okay. So the, 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 the stream of income from one of these two vehicles has to be at least 36 months. Yes, it has to continue for 36 months. Okay. But in both of those cases, you only have to show proof 
that you receive the first month. It's Good. not like alimony and child support where you have to show six months. I see. Interesting. Any other vehicles? or Those two are wonderful options. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things I wrote about in my book. Uh, you have the uh, what's called the 72T, uh, where you're taking retirement money uh, and basically getting payments. It has to be set up, uh, and, and it's sort of complicated. You know, you probably should have your... Uh, you know, stockbroker or your financial advisor, preferably somebody that's done a lot of these 72 T's because they can be complicated. But basically, um, you could create that stream of income of, of certain monthly payments uh, for a period of maximum of five years or until you turn 59 and a half, whichever uh -huh. happens sooner. But there's no penalty on that. Like normally, if you're under 59 and a half and yeah. you take money out, there's a 10% penalty. You avoid that penalty, but the money you're taking out is still taxable. Got it. All Unless right. it's a Roth. That's a whole different situation because that's that's already prepaid tax mm -hmm. if you're in a Roth. Right. So, Jeffrey, we haven't mentioned the name, title of your book yet, which is Divorce House Sense. And it's one of several books that you've written, right? Yes, this is the uh, seventh book uh, that I've written on divorce, but the first one that specifically deals uh, with the marital home. So the subtitle to that book is, Can You Keep Your Marital Home or Will You Have to Sell? Mm. And it goes through everything that you really need to know about. Uh, it talks about, you know, the three options that we spoke about before and, you know, all the requirements to get a mortgage and everything that you could think about regarding the marital home or what to do if you decide to sell or you have no choice but yeah, to sell. Right. Um, and I have some creative uh, financing techniques in there as, as well that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Um, so hopefully your listeners uh, will be able to benefit uh, if they have a marital home and they're divorced and they're trying to figure out what to do or what they can do. Mm. Well, where can uh, people get your book, Divorce House Sense? Well, they, they, they could go to my website. Uh, they could go to uh, uh, divorcehousesensebook.com, yeah. or they could get the paperback on Amazon. Great. Uh, the paperback or the Kindle is available on Amazon as well. Fabulous. Jeffrey, I've learned a lot today. Appreciate your being a guest on Inside Divorce. And this is Jeffrey. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Hendel. Yeah, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Landers, who's a certified divorce financial advisor, a uh, real estate broker, a mortgage broker, and lots of other wonderful skills. Right? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right.